Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Latino Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Jonathan Cortez, the producer and host of today's episode. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. C.J. Alvarez about his recently released book, Borderland, Border Water, A History of Construction on the U.S.-Mexico Divide, published by University of Texas Press in October 2019. Dr. Alvarez is an assistant professor in the Department of Mexican-American and Latina Latino Studies at the University of Texas at Austin, and his research and teaching center on the history of the U.S.-Mexico border and environmental history. Currently, CJ is on leave from UT Austin as a resident fellow at the School for Advanced Research in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where he is developing his second book project, and which I'm sure and excited to hear more about later on in the podcast. Thank you so much for being us for being with us today, CJ, and welcome to the show. Great to be with you, Jonathan. So I was wondering if we could begin the interview by telling us a bit more about yourself, right? Perhaps a bit more about where you grew up, where you went to school, and how you became interested on the topic of the U.S.-Mexico divide. Well, I grew up in Las Cruces, New Mexico, in, in southern New Mexico, which for most people around the United States, I think they would think of that as a border town. But the actual border people, and by that I mean people who who actually share a sister city on the Mexican side or on the U.S. side, depending on your perspective. Wouldn't consider Las Cruces a border town because it's about an hour north of El Paso Juarez. And um, and so it's not actually on the, the U.S.-Mexico divide, but it was something that was, uh, but the border was something kind of in the back of our minds growing up, my friends and I, my family and I. And I think the first time that I that it crystallized in my mind that there was something that that really needed to be explained about the U.S.-Mexico border is when I went out to college at Stanford in the Bay Area. And I was so naive. I'd grown up, you know, never hadn't really spent that much time outside Las Cruces. And I realized after about a year out there that there were no checkpoints on the highway, which, which for border people, they'll immediately understand what I'm talking about. But for everybody else, that'll, that might be a strange concept. If, if you grow up in the, in the, in the region of the U S Mexico border, close to the U S Mexico border, even if you're not in a border town, there are uh, federal police that is border patrol checkpoints on the highways leading out of the border region where you can be stopped and searched and, um, and questioned. And, uh, and we took this totally for granted. I just thought it was a normal thing growing up. And when I went to the Bay Area, I immediately realized that it was, it was definitely not a normal thing. And it was something that, that I felt needed to be explained. Uh, I went, it, it, it didn't immediately congeal as a research project, though. In college, I studied art history. I was fascinated by by images. I was I just thought, you know, paintings and and sculptures were were beautiful, and I was really drawn to that. And I was drawn to those classes. So my undergrad degree is actually in in art history, and then 
following that path or path dependency, if you want to think about it that way, I knew I wanted to go to grad school. I didn't quite know what I wanted to do. In the back of my mind, of course, you know, this border question is lingering the longer I spend living outside the border region. But I decided to go to grad school in art history and just follow the path of least resistance. And I went to Harvard uh, to a PhD program there and began studying viceregal Mexican painting, that is colonial Mexican painting, so New Spain. And I was, I became fascinated in these missionary martyrs, or they called themselves martyrs, who were these elite Franciscans for the most part, who came up to places like Texas, which was then Coahuila, Texas, and New Mexico, which was then well, Mexico, part of the sort of the far northern reaches of the Spanish Empire. And they were killed by indigenous people. And I, I thought this, this frontier question was fascinating. I didn't realize it at the time, but I was I had begun the process of thinking and, and writing about the the border region or what would become the border region after the, the, the colonial period ended. I ultimately decided that art history was probably not for me. And I dropped out of Harvard, which was a very uh, um, suspect decision for a lot of people I knew. Like That doesn't seem like a good idea to drop out of Harvard, but it, it didn't seem like a good idea to become a mediocre art historian either. So I, I left and I started a, a PhD in, in history, regular history at the University of Chicago. And by that time, I'd really hit my stride intellectually. And I'd, I had come to... I had come to the conclusion, like I'd, I'd already made the decision in my mind. It's like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to write about something more contemporary, more 20th century, more, um, you know, something that I can, that, that better ties into the world that I know and hopefully better explains the world that I knew and the, and the questions I had about the world that I knew. So when I started that PhD that I actually finished at the university of Chicago, I was, uh, I was very focused on trying to understand the the history of the border and how it came to be what it is today. It took me a while to actually get to the concept of the book that just came out, which is very different from my dissertation, but we can talk about that later. But one thing I will say before we before we shift gears and and move to the book or whatever else you want to talk about, uh, the book has, I think, 53 images in it which is a lot for a history book. And, 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 and my editor at UT Press, Robert Devins, was, was very generous with me and they worked with me and they, they didn't fight me on any of them. And I really appreciate that. And I see that now in retrospect as kind of having come full circle. It's definitely not an art history book, but it, that, that original uh, – oh, sorry. Uh, something happened. But that original – uh, interest in images has like like resurfaced again, and um, and produced the book that uh, that you see today. Yeah, and I, I think I, I love that you said that because that was actually one of um, the questions that I had for you. One of the, one of the things that I was interested in, right? Um, every chapter had like no less than like five five uh, pictures. And I was like, that this is fantastic and also unheard of for like a traditional history book. And so um, maybe we can start there about the, the um, not only the images, but, but, but how you came to, to um, construct the chapters, right. In the order that they are in um, where, like, was there an archive that you had, you, you um, worked with that produced all of these images. A lot of them were from one specific photographer, um, in the early 20th century, at least. And so I'm curious as to, um, as to what images you decided to put in the book and which ones you didn't. Because I think reading through the book, the images added so much, especially because you were able to not only, um, not only write them into the narrative of the book, but you also had pretty good, you also had really good descriptions under the figure, uh, under the figure headings. Um, so, can you talk more about the images, about um, was there a certain archive, uh, how, how you decided which ones to put in the book and which ones not to put in the book? Well, for, first I'll, I'll tell you, well, I'll give you the, uh, 
answer in a couple of parts. So my dissertation was about just, it, it, it was, I was trying to write a history of policing on the U.S.-Mexico border. And at that time, Kelly Lila Hernandez's book hadn't come out. Rachel St. John's book hadn't come out. I'm talking about uh, Migra and Line in the Sand and, and Debbie Kang's book, The INS on the Line, hadn't come out yet. And so it was, it was, kinda, it was more uncharted territory. And, um, and I was interested in, in trying to tell that history. And I don't think I was very successful in the dissertation because it was this, there were these disconnected chapters. They were all episodes, but they didn't really add up to anything. And so I made the, in some ways painful, in some ways liberating decision to pretty much just throw the dissertation out and start from scratch. So if, if my graduate committee gets their hands on this book and reads it, they're going to be like, where did this come from? Like this, this is like, this is like completely new material. And, and, and part of my strategy for doing that was to, to create a more coherent narrative. So to ask your, or to answer your question about how did I organize the chapters? I, I started from this very simple premise. I want to tell a, a history of the physical concrete, real, tangible construction projects on the U.S.-Mexico border and how they built up over time. And so the starting point, to my mind, was obvious. And that is, we'll start when there was, there was nothing built on the U.S.-Mexico border, when the border was demarcated and delineated, you know, starting from the treaty in 1848, and then these boundary surveys, etc. And, uh, and then just that's the through line of the narrative how building projects came to accumulate on this U.S.-Mexico border. And so the, 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 you know, to get a little nitty gritty in terms of the, like the scholarly intervention, we talk all the time as scholars about how the border, how ethnicity, how race, how gender in the United States and in Mexico is, is socially and politically constructed, which is, which is like a really valuable way, I think, of thinking about it, the, the the way boundaries are created, figuratively and literally. But what I really wanted to 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 drill down on was the literal physical construction of of the U.S. Mexico border, and which is not incompatible, obviously, with social and political construction. It's just to say that if you want to talk about social and political constru- political construction of of these kinds of uh, social features. Then it's important also to you know to think about the built environment in that context. So that's that's how the narrative came to be. In terms of the images, I came across this gold mine at the the Fort Worth branch of the National Archives. You know, the National Archives is these regional branches around the country, and oftentimes, at least from the archivist point of view the what what they perceive to be the most you know historically important or or obviously relevant documents go to the DC or the College Park main branches but what's so interesting about the Fort Worth branch and how I came across so many of the images that I that I write about in the book is that's where the head that's where pretty much all the documents of the International Boundary and Water Commission show up. Because unlike other federal agencies that are all headquartered in D.C., the IBWC is headquartered in El Paso, and it has a a mirror agency on the Mexican side that's headquartered not in Mexico City, like all their federal agencies, but in Ciudad Juarez, right across the, the bridge from El Paso. And so all those documents end up in Fort Worth. I drove up and asked them to see the documents and they gave me these boxes that were unopened. Some of them by researcher, they are just as they had come from the IBWC and we cracked them open and I looked inside and I just, I couldn't believe my eyes because here were thousands of pages of blueprints and topographic maps and aerial photography and uh, and images of the border that I had never seen before. And I, 
then went through the process of figuring out which ones do I use for the book. And so the, the way I chose the images I, 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 I included in the book was in part to, to show people views of the border that they have probably never seen before. Uh, you know, we're, we're used to seeing pictures of the border that have fences in them or that have, um, you know, some, some people know the boundary monuments, those obelisk looking things. Uh, but we, we already have this kind of stock visual vocabulary in our minds about what the border looks like um, and how then we should feel or respond politically to that. But if you, you take a look at my book, you'll see a lot of images you probably haven't seen before. And, um, and, and so that was, that was part of the puzzle. The, the photographer you're talking about, W.D. Smithers, mainly in chapter two, uh, he was a photographer on the ground. So these are not like maps and blueprints and everything like you, you'll see in other chapters. And he took thousands of photos in the 1910s all the way up to the 1960s, I believe, mostly in the Big Bend region of uh, Texas. And I, I I came to those photos. What were you going to say? I was asking, was was Smithers hired by a certain government agency or what was his role in photographing this area? Well, he, he was so interesting. He was born in, um, in San Luis Potosí to an American father, American parents, I believe, who were there working in the mining industry. Because, of course, there's like tons of Mexicans in northern Mexico and other parts of Mexico, for that matter, in the late 19th and early 20th century before the revolution. And he was, he was part of that. And he grew up and was working as a teamster for the U.S. Army in the 1910s, which is important because it was during the 1910s that the border was the most militarized it's ever been. And by that, I mean, first Taft and then Wilson deployed at its peak in 1917, 160,000 soldiers to the U.S.-Mexico border during the Mexican Revolution. Now that part of West Texas, that part of, um, that part of the Big Bend region is, is some of the you know, comparatively most peaceful and isolated parts of the border compared to places like Arizona and Southern California. Um, Then it was, it was considered to be a real hot zone. And so there were a lot of soldiers running around in West Texas and this young WD Smithers, who was just learning photography, was a teamster just kind of hauling stuff back and forth through that rough country out there. And he started taking pictures and he just never, never stopped. And so that, that archive, which is mostly at the Harry Ransom Center at UT, which was very convenient for me. And, and they're, they're obviously, uh, you know, a, an extraordinarily professional group of people and with a world-class collection of all sorts of documents there. But looking through those photos was a way to help me understand the nature of the built environment in that part of the border visually, because oftentimes people don't write very explicitly about in, in traditional historical documents about the built environment, you can see things that you can't read about. And that's what I found in those, um, in those photographs. So that's the, that's the very academic answer to your question, the, the, but there's another answer. And that answer is a lot of the images I chose, I chose because I thought they were beautiful in one way or another. I I thought his landscape photography, even though it was in the context of, of a very tense and unpleasant set of circumstances are, they're beautiful images. I, I think the, even the, the scientific, kinds of images like the geological soundings of the granite bed in which they built Amistad Dam, one of the big storage dams between the United States and Mexico. I thought those images were were quite beautiful. And so I put them in. Yeah. I, and, and hearing you talk about your undergraduate studies in art history and architecture makes so much more sense <laughs> with this book. Um, 
But I, I have so much I want I want to ask you and talk about. Um, one of which is is not only not only do these photographs give us a, another depiction of the U.S. Mexico divide, but I think um, really nails down one of the main arguments of your of, of the book, in which I, I think at least is the idea that the U.S. Mexico divide, in all of its unsureness and seen as like. Um, 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 quote unquote wild, right? Can be tamed, can be sort of um, maneuvered, and 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 um, um, I, I'm I'm specifically ref- referencing even the figure in chapter two where they sort of um talk about the anatomy of a mule and and the importance of of um being able to know what the, the the limits of the mule for for surveillance and for movement and so i think um photographs the photographs you chose really show how much they were trying to um capture and understand the u.s mexico divide um and its natural environment and control it in a lot of ways but um i wanted to ask you about uh chapter two specifically where you talk about um, that the border region during this time in the early 20th century was converted into a modern militarized police zone, right? And that's before, um, that's before, right, 1924. That's before large calls for a, for a border patrol. So, can you talk more about Chapter Two and and your argument of of it becoming during this time really a modern militarized police zone? Yeah. Uh, well, first, I'll, 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 I mean, I'll talk about that from the point of view of this mule that you just brought up. Because pe- people might be listening, but like, what are they talking about? <laughs> a mule? Like, what does this have to do with with anything? There, part of W. D. Smithers' um, archive is this uh, is this very very detailed uh, image of a mule and all of its constituent parts. So here's all the different parts you need to know of, of the body and skeleton of a mule. Why on earth would that be a, a, a useful or relevant thing to know or to understand in the context of border policing or, uh, or, or these, these early border patrols in the 1910s? The answer is motorized vehicles had just been invented and there was and, and the 1910s were this very interesting period of transition between an all animal and human powered military that is if you want to move something from place to place you're going to need a horses or mules to do it or just foot just you're going to have to walk to motorized trucks cars, airplanes, the, the whole nine yards in terms of internal combustion engine machines, right? Well, trains had come before, obviously, but, but trains don't have a lot of, they don't have a very easy time accessing very remote areas. They have to stay on their tracks, obviously. So in the 1910s, there's this hybrid military force of part animal, part machine. And we take it totally for granted that it's like, well, if you want to drive a military truck, you have to know, you have to have mechanics that understand all the constituent parts of that truck to repair it when it breaks down, to deal with mechanical failures and that sort of thing. But my point, including that, and I think Smithers point in including that that diagram of the mule was to say, well, actually there was a similar kind of expertise that pertained to animals because the animals that were used as pack animals in these, in these areas were quite standardized. You know, they were all similar heights, similar weights. They were chosen to be, um, you know, to have, to, to approximate the, the sort of the mechanistic standardization that we'd ultimately come to see with, um, with, with vehicles. So, so that's interesting just from a, a history of technology point of view but what's interesting from the point of view of the history of border policing, you're exactly right. The, the standard history of border policing begins in 1924 when the Border Patrol was created because the Border Patrol is so often seen as synonymous with, well, that's the, that's the primary police force that, that, 
that that acts as a inspection and, and enforcement branch of what was then the Immigration and Naturalization Service. But in fact, what I what I try to point out in the book is that there was something that came before it that in many ways was was way bigger, way more militaristic in like technically speaking. Um and and had a far greater degree of geographic access because of their animal power. And what I mean by that is like, if, if you look at the, the history of the border patrol through most of the 20th century, for most of that time, they're not really patrolling the border. They're patrolling ports of entry and the, and the places directly around ports of entry. What the military was doing in the 19th, Tens was actually they had a they had a surprising degree of geographic coverage in very very remote regions on the U.S. Mexico border. How did they do that? By building roads, and it's it's the least dramatic thing you can think of about the the border. Obviously, the the fence, like the the current fence, is the most dramatic thing you can think of. But I would argue that that these roads, even if they're just dirt access roads are in fact, uh, at, at least, if not more, important story about building projects if you're interested in, in the way people have policed the, the U.S.-Mexico border. Another way to put that is to say, what's the most powerful weapon in, uh, in a police force or a military force's arsenal in remote areas? It's not guns. It's not surveillance. It's, not, uh, it's, uh, it's roads. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off hmm. and so maybe backtracking to chapter one what was happening before this period in the early 20th century what was what was what was was it a similarly attempting to defend ports of injury or was it what was happening in perhaps the later the later 19th century post um, uh, 1848 so what you have to understand about the 19th century and and the early years of the 20th century that is so I'll put it to you this way most often when at least in this country when people begin conversations about the US Mexico border the the subtextual question or even the main question is well what is the history of US policy because U.S. is the United States is a more powerful country and a more influential country, and and operates in some ways as a hegemon. All these kinds of these kinds of arguments. But in the 19th century, what you the first question you have to ask is what was Mexican policy? And beginning in the the I think it was 1876 when he was first elected, Porfirio Diaz. Am I right? Okay, good. <laughs> Just real-time fact-checking me here. So Porfirio Diaz gets, gets elected. He stays more or less um, the, the president of Mexico all the way up until the revolution uh, in 1910-1911, so for, for several decades. And he adopted a policy for economic growth that was based on foreign investment from Germany, from Britain, 
and of course, from the United States. So if you understand that, then you can also understand how in, especially in the 1870s and 1880s and 1890s, the border meant something very different, not because it was some utopian place that's way better than today where everybody could just cross freely, but because so many Americans owned so much of Northern Mexico, which was one of the reasons in terms of mines, in terms of timber, in terms of of big ranches, uh, and, and so on and so forth. And so in that regard, so many parts of the Mexican North were de facto extensions of the resource frontier of the American West. And the border was very porous then, but what we mean by porousness is, was, was totally different because that porousness was, is best understood in the context of, of U.S. entrepreneurs and, and capitalists more than it's about some better days in terms of U.S.-Mexico cultural relations, although it was certainly easier for, for regular people to, to cross. But all this to say is that there was, there, there was nothing that resembled the kinds of policing or building projects that we see in the 20th and, and 21st century. Mm-hmm. Instead, there are these like um, markers, right? They, like these markers go up unevenly um there's a lot of issues around them around like how to measure them um or how to measure this the the distance between them how to get to places like like in the desert that where it's it's not as easily as accessible as a port of entry or around a major city can you talk more about those well yeah so they they do build things on the u.s mexico border in the 19th century um they build these survey markers which they called monuments they did two expeditions to try to do this. Because you have to remember, after the, the United States attack on Mexico in 1846, the war was over very quickly uh, in about a year and a half. And then in 1848, a treaty ceases hostilities. And then half of Mexican territory is taken by the Americans. And that's easy to, to say. It was easy for them to say. It's easy for me to say, well, there goes half the, the territory. But the practical implications of that is, well, all right, so where is the, the border going to go? How do we figure out wh- where to actually put the border? The Rio Grande was, uh, the Rio Bravo from the Mexican side, which is what they call it, was what they thought was like an easy way to delineate the border between Texas, uh, Chihuahua, Coahuila, uh, Nuevo León, Tamaulipas. But then what do you do with the Western border, this land border where there's no natural feature that's just automatically there to say, here's one place and here's another. And so their solution was to build these survey markers. They did an expedition in the 1850s. It was catastrophically unsuccessful. It cost way more money than anybody had anticipated. They thought they were going to be done in a few months. I think it took them like seven years. And um, and they didn't even do a, a very good job because the, the history of technology had not caught up to the, the border building imperative. They couldn't accurately calculate longitude. So some of the survey markers were actually not in the right place. In the 1890s, another boundary expedition takes place. Totally bilateral, Mexican officials, U.S. officials. They set up new boundary markers. Those markers are still there. You can still go see them, at least on the western border. They're not on the river border. And this, a lot of scholars point to as this is when the border was really fixed for the first time. And I think that's right. But I would add another perspective to that as well that goes along with the context that I just explained about just U.S. investment in Mexico. It was also the case that in the 1890s, because of new innovations in mining technology in particular, but also the expansion of big ranches and haciendas on the Mexican side, it was generally more important to have precise property boundaries. And from that perspective, the precise 
demarcation of the U.S.-Mexico border was part and parcel of a larger context of precise private property boundaries on both sides of the of the U.S.-Mexico divide. And I think that's a really important way to, to understand the, the deeper meaning of what it meant to build things on the border back then, because, uh, because it acknowledges how it acknowledges this cross border logic and this, and this larger logic of investment and business that in some ways was very similar on both sides of the border. Yeah, I think in, in reference to that, I'm, I was really interested in, in this idea that, um, that so much of the of the border construction is tied to capitalist endeavors, right? From the from the end of the nineteenth century up until you, the last chapter of your book, right? Um, it's it, the there's a there's a constant battle between um, construction to keep certain people and certain things out, and then construction to continue the 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 the, the binational exchange. Um, do you, would you like to talk about that some in relation to maybe the early 20th century or whatever you'd like? Well, that's actually the, the perfect segue because, and, and that's this kind of the, the next step in why I think it's important to establish what the, what the financial logic was, not just the cultural or the political logic was in demarcating the border in the late 19th century. Um, so like, making a huge leap all the way up to the um to post nineteen ninety-four up until the really the present day, you see the logical extension or the 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 built environment extension of that nineteenth century logic. What I mean by that is if you Start with the free trade agreement, NAFTA, when that goes into to law in 1994. What you see after that is, on one hand, a boom in barrier construction. They first started building the, the border fence in Southern California in 1990. You see different fencing uh, around the ports mainly start popping up. Throughout the 90s. And then, of course, by the time we get to 2006, we get the Secure Fence Act, which authorized the construction of hundreds of miles, multi billion dollar mega project of fencing. And that's all there on the border today and is, is bigger by so many orders of magnitude than any other fencing and surveillance project that had ever come before on the US Mexico border. But that was only one major building project in the border region since the 1990s. The other was road construction. In that span of time, we also see new ports of entry being opened, new bridges being built across the U.S. Mexico, across the river border to Texas, new highway spurs being built to kind of subsidiary ports, lane expansions to accommodate increased traffic across the border that they anticipated rightfully from the the truck traffic of the free trade agreement. And so it becomes this seemingly bizarre logic of you have one mega project that's barrier construction in remote regions and you have another mega project that is connective tissue, that is infrastructure designed to link the United States to Mexico. And this is you know, very much a product of the free trade agreement and, and, and the aspects of that. But it's also like I started this, this uh, or like, like you asked. It's also an extension of a very 19th century logic in that, in that regard. How do we link the market economies of Mexico and the United States through building projects, which is ports of entry and highways? Hmm. 
So we've talked uh, at length about, you know, ports of entries, highways, roads. But the second t- second half of the title of your book is Border Water. <laughs> and I think that, that, that takes us really nicely into chapter three, where you talk about waterworks and hydraulic engineering and the fascinating history of, of straightening out um, the river and, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated to hear you talk more about, about waterworks. Well, you notice that, I mean, if you look up my faculty webpage and if you listen to me talk at conferences, you know, I, I am introduced and I introduce myself. It's like, I'm a borderland scholar. I'm part of this, this community of, of other scholars that I, you know, have great admiration for. And we all call ourselves like borderlands people. But you notice that I never use the term borderlands in the entire book. And the reason I don't, there's a variety of reasons that I don't, but the, the simplest is that it has the tendency, I believe, to obscure border waters. And if we take a step back and recognize that the majority of the U.S.-Mexico border is, in fact, a water border. It's 1,200 miles of, of, of river border between Texas and the, and the four Mexican states on the other side. And then there's a, actually a little bit where the Colorado uh, River is, uh, I think, about 20-some 20, 20 miles of, of river border there between four states, two on the Mexican side and, and two on the U.S. side. And we have this tendency to talk very nonspecifically about the border and kind of and and in so doing adopt the premise that the 19th century border surveyors did that is well the river just kind of stands in for the for the border we don't have to think about it anymore it's just that there it is what in fact is the case is that if you in well going back to the to the 1840s and 1850s when they when they first established the border. It made perfect sense to use the river as part of the international divide because it's a naturally occurring feature. This is what we call an arsifinous frontier, like mountains or rivers, natural features just used as like kind of stand-in borders. That was also a time when, when precise property boundaries weren't as important as they became even by the late 19th century. The point is that from a 20th century and 21st century perspective, you couldn't choose a worse thing than a, than a river to delineate a border that is meant to be fixed and precise. And what's worse, you, you really couldn't choose a desert river, a river that passes through in large, uh, in large part through the Chihuahuan Desert. The reason a desert river is bad for a border is because desert rivers, more than temperate zone rivers, move a lot. They're running through disarticulated sand. Their discharge is very uneven because there's these flash floods that happen in the, in the desert. And so rivers, desert rivers have a tendency to jump their course. So... That's obviously uh, bad news if you're trying to have a fixed boundary. So if you start from that premise, and by the really by the early 20th century, all the way up until the 1970s, a lot of what the Boundary and Water Commission did was try to manage that exact problem, was try to manage flooding, try to manage this shifting border try to manage the arbitration that that had to take place when land was transferred back and forth between the two countries. And if you take the whole scope of river engineering, hydraulic engineering that included dam building, it included like for storage, it included diversion dam building for agriculture, it included flood control works, it included at one point actually straightened the river, like cutting bends out of the river around El Paso and, and Juarez. 
if you put all this together, you can actually understand that if the question is about the the which part of the border, the land border or the water border, underwent the most extreme kinds of human modification, it's the river border hands down. Every inch of that main stem of the Rio Grande watershed has been transformed in one way or another by human intervention. More so, I think, than e- even if you include the Secure Fence Act, uh, you know, barrier infrastructure on the western border. And that's something that, um, that I think is, is oftentimes taken for granted by a lot of folks. And I really wanted to bring that and make that half the conversation between borderland and border water. And one of the most fascinating insights that I was able to, to unearth from that research is that there, is, there are these deep connections between the border builders who wanted to build barrier and surveillance infrastructure to control the movement of people across the border and the hydraulic engineers who wanted to build um, water infrastructure to control the movement of nature itself. Hmm. That's fascinating. So can you talk about maybe some of some examples make maybe some of the dams that were built or some some of the major sort of um projects around controlling water and hydraulics engineering that you found in the book that you found most fascinating that you needed to put in here that you found were um direct links to ideas of of policing the the border the US Mexico divide well to my mind um i think What's interesting about looking at the the water infrastructure is it is I found far more ambiguous, uh, like morally and politically, than the hardcore policing initiatives on the uh, on the western border. And what I mean by that is, like, let's take the example of Falcon Dam. Um, have you ever been there? Oh yeah. Well, so it's this huge storage dam that they build, they complete in 1954 in South Texas on the on the the like before you get into like the Rio Grande Valley, like above the Rio Grande Valley. They build this huge storage dam. The reason they built that, and by the way, these big dams on the on the on the the Rio Grande, they're totally bilateral. It's half Mexican workers, half American workers, half Mexican engineers, half American engineers. They're, all the documents are completely bilingual. They can't do anything without the other country's approval. And by all accounts, both historically and the folks I know today in the IBWC, these two agencies, the, the Mexican version and the, and the US version, really did, like they, they got along like comparatively, like compared at least to the the very tense, you know, kind of uh, other kinds of diplomatic relations the U.S.-Mexico has. And I think part of why they got along better than other agencies is because they were, they were forced to actually occupy the same environments and, and, and work in this very local context. And so many times border policy is abstracted. We talk about the border as a whole, but no such thing exists. It's just, this, it's a, it's a, constellation of very specific places that have different cultural aspects and they have different environmental aspects. And the Boundary Commission people on both sides understood this better than anybody else. So they build Falcon Dam in order to partially solve what had been a very serious problem in the Rio Grande Delta as it drains into the Gulf of Mexico, which was flooding, very serious flooding where many people's livelihoods uh, were irrevocably altered um, and, and many people died in the years that came before. So you, on the surface, you're like, well, that's a, sounds like a good idea. Sounds like a good project. Um, that's, that seems like the right move. But in order to build a dam like that, they had to 
essentially for, forcibly move, displace these two towns, Ciudad Guerrero on the Mexican side, and then this town called Zapata on the U.S. side, on the Texas side. And they just had to evacuate the towns because those towns were in the, the um, not the floodplain, they, they were in the, the inundation zone. They were basically going to be submerged in, this, in the massive reservoir that was created. And that was really painful, incredibly painful for the people who had to leave. And, um, and in that regard, you know, it has these resonances with the history of, of, of border policing, at least immigration policing, that the premise of which is we're going to, we're going to force you to, we're going to, we're going to curtail your mobility in one way or another. We're going to forcibly expel you from the country. We're going to keep you in, uh, you know, a detention center. We're going to. We're in charge of how and where you move, and that's very similar in, in in a conceptual sense to this kind of displacement from the water project. And what I mean when I say it's it's more ambiguous is it it does it does two things. It, it creates real pain and disruption in people's lives which immigration policing often has. But in this case, it also saved countless, uh, who, who knows, the, the, the amount of um, uh, heartache that the flood control program helped avoid. Yeah, I found I found those stories about um, when you when you wrote about people's experiences um within those areas of, of flooding or of needing to be displaced or moved really, um, really grounding in the history. But I had a few, we're almost running out of time and I had a few questions left and I'm sort of just going to like throw them out and then let you decide what to answer and how to answer it and, and all that good stuff. But so one of them was um, really interested in your writing a, um across the border divide, right? Because you said the, the Boundary Commission was a, a binational commission. And so a lot of the documents were bilingual. I'm curious because you also use, um, you, you, do, you do a really good job, I think, at, at, at talking about both the history of Mexico and the history of the United States in relation to all of these things that are happening and also using um, scholars from Mexico and scholars from the U.S. to talk about the way these things are happening. And so I'm curious how did that work out in your research process? Was it something that you did um, again across the U.S.-Mexico divide, or or was it in Fort Worth that these documents were just happened to be in both languages and correspondence happened to be you know sort of all laid out there? Um, and then another thing was um, curious about about one of the arguments you made towards the end of the book was that a lot of the a lot of the projects especially waterworks projects in the later 20th century had to do with um correcting or um um not necessarily not necessarily correcting but working on fixing things that that had been messed up in earlier waterworks projects so those are two things that i that i was thinking about well so the answer to your your first question is the to me the most valuable archive on the mexican side is um is the the National Water Archive? They call it. it's in Mexico City. It's a whole archive dedicated to water projects. And you know, in some ways, the history of Mexico is the history of managing water, especially in Mexico City, which was like one big marsh. Uh, and um, and then in the arid north, in the in the desert north, these big irrigation projects that are very similar to the big irrigation projects in the arid west in in the United States. Um. So I, I learned the most from the water archive down there. It's organized very uh, by project and by region, and it's a small archive. It's, it's great to work in. I, I just loved working there. The staff there, the the archivists were so so helpful, just as they were in Fort Worth, which is a real attribute of smaller archives, as opposed to like big national archives. Um, that uh, it, it's very helpful as a researcher to be able to have extended conversations with. Um, with, with archive staff who know the collection better than, than I ever will, uh, just by virtue of, of, of working with it every day. And so I, I could not have done it without the, without the staff at, 
in, in both Mexico City and in, and in Fort Worth and at the Ransom Center. Um, and what was the second question? About the, um, about this idea of – one second. Let me get to that chapter. Um, oh, you know, it's, it's this idea that, that I call compensatory building. Right, yes. So you, you start off – like when they first start building these big dams, when they first get that kind of technology, when they first start building fences, there was this, there was this genuineness, I think, that they had. We're like, oh, well, if we build this stuff, it will solve a problem. What they didn't fully anticipate, a perceived problem, right, depending on how you, how you define that. What they didn't anticipate is that physical structures then generated new kinds of problems. In the case of barrier infrastructure, people obviously started going around it. Now, whether you think that's a problem or not is, is a separate issue, but it basically creates the impetus for, well, now we have to build more to deal with the side effect of the first building project. If you build a, if you build a lot of irrigation works, you get problems like salinization, like the water quality goes way down and in some cases becomes uh impossible to grow crops, which is the whole point of a lot of uh, irrigation infrastructure. And so they had to build new kinds of drains and desalinization plants and that sort of thing to, to compensate for earlier building projects. And so the premise is the same. It's like if you, have a, if you have a policy problem or if you have an environmental problem, you can build your way out of it. Like that's the that's the way that a lot of border builders approach this. And what actually happened, I think, is that we ended up just getting more and more compound problems that have resulted in both environmental destruction and as has come to kind of full <laughs> fruition today, just a, a kind of a, a terrible social environment. Um, fueled by xenophobia, fueled by racism, fueled by suspicion, fueled by black markets, fueled by um, you know just just really toxic things to both Mexican and and U.S. society. Mm. All right, uh, I think we're coming to the end of of that conversation. But thank you so much for all of that knowledge. <laughs> I'm so excited to listen back to it and take really rigorous notes. Um, but one more question before uh, we we head out. What are you working on now? Oh, I'm I am so excited about this the the project I'm working on. I was excited about the the border project, but um, the the premise of the border book that just came out is what if we look at the the building projects on the international divide? The story is about the literal border itself. The starting point of the project I'm working on now, which is a history of the Chihuahuan Desert, which I don't think most people could even find on a map or even know what I'm talking about, but is a very real place and in many ways far more real than the U.S.-Mexico border. I'm starting not from the border political borders. I'm starting with environmental borders. I'm saying, what if we tell the history of a very extreme and challenging environment like the Chihuahuan Desert as an environmental history through which political borders pass. It's in southern New Mexico, west Texas, uh, eastern uh, Chihuahua, and western Coahuila for the most part. So it's definitely a border project, but it's taking a look at the, at the border region through a, a very explicitly environmental lens, which... Um, which very few people have ever done. And it's a challenging project, and uh, but I'm having fun and and I'm just riveted uh, to to be doing this work, uh, trying to trying to figure out how to tell that story. Hmm. Yeah, that sounds really interesting, and I'm I'm, I'm, I'm I'll be waiting. <laughs> Super exciting. <to> hear. <laughs> well, don't hold your breath. It's gonna, yeah, it'll be a few years, but uh, oh no! Well, thank you so much for for sharing with us uh, what your second project is being. And, and CJ, thank you so much for being on the show with us today. I really enjoyed it. My pleasure, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. Thanks. All right. Goodbye.
Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.